Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everyone, to Your Case is on Hold, episode 24, the final episode of 2022. We are covering the December 21st release of the journal Bone and Joint Surgery, also coincidentally the first day of winter, so hopefully everyone is staying warm and all your cases are on green as in go. For those who have been listening, welcome back. For those first-time listeners, we're happy to have you and happy holidays. Be sure to like and subscribe so you get all the notifications of every issue of your cases on hold that drops, all those sweet Easter eggs that we have baked in for you the whole year long. Also, your cases on hold is brought to you by the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. I think for those who have yet to uh, get a holiday gift for the surgeon that they love, or the researcher that they love, or even just like, you can definitely go to the jbjs.org website and pick up all sorts of gifts for your medical student, for your researcher, for your resident, for your fellow, for your family member, for people who are just learning about orthopedics, to people who are doing the maintenance of certification. There are all sorts of gifts and benefits to subscribe to and to gift to your friends and colleagues. So do check that out. I remain Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Statistics and Methods, and I just got promoted. So I am now the uh, CMO of the Nakatomi Corporation, which maybe only diehard fans of this show will get. And uh, speaking of holiday movies, what's your favorite holiday movie? Ooh, that's a you tough. also have to introduce yourself. I'm Antonia Chen. I am not as cool as Andrew Schoenfeld when it comes to cultural references. Um, Elf is the one, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I watched it for the first time last year, and it was hilarious. So I do like it. I don't know if it's a tradition, but I do like it a lot. You do sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> well played. Well played. <laughs> how, about, how about favorite holiday song? Your favorite holiday song? Um, I was just singing how uh, the weather outside is frightful. Um, because let it, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Yeah, it's getting that way in Boston right now. So yeah. Yeah. how about you? What's your uh, movie of choice? Uh, I'm a uh, I'm a Christmas Carol person. Uh, I like lots of different uh, renditions of it. The uh, cartoon with Jim Carrey is always good. Favorite holiday song is a little bit out the box. It would be. Uh, Old City Bar by Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Old City Bar, never too far from the dreams we have carried and been. So we're all the orthopedic surgeons whose case is on hold. They're all holed up in that Old City Bar. Great. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> What's on your wish list for this year? What do you What do you got? Happiness, like we're always wishing for. My case is not to be on hold. Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, uh, to paraphrase Yo Gotti, I'm like Santa Claus sliding through your OR. 
handing out green is go cases on go for all the good orthopedic surgeons and your cases on hold for all the bad ones. And there've been quite a few bad ones this year. uh, I suspect. Yeah. Happiness is awesome. I'm willing to take an LV cardigan though. (laughs) Nothing says happiness like Louis Vuitton. Am I right? It's happiness can be bought, right? That's the goal. <laughs> yes, that's the ultimate message of this podcast. <laughs> Yours at least is attainable. Mine, on the other hand, probably not attainable, such as life. <laughs> All right. And you know what? I mean, at the end of the day, if our reviews have ruined your holiday season, just harken back to Jethro Tull. This is just a holiday episode. That's that's it at the end of the day. But um Enough with all that. Let's get into what's in this issue for you to unpack or unwrap, maybe, on Christmas morning. Top of the pile, what's new in musculoskeletal tumor surgery by Gazendam and colleagues. This is permanently free. There's a lot new in musculoskeletal tumor surgery because it's 14 pages. So uh, I think you can read that and get a nice a nice overview and a nice wrap-up and that just seems right to show up on a maintenance of certification at some point in the future. Then we have um, in the arts and humanities, I have an idea. Now what? By Souk. I have an idea. Feel free to say no. How about we put your case on hold? I will not take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. Orthopedic society leadership, diversity, and academic participation. Where do we stand now? By Albright and colleagues. And then benzodiazepines and related drugs in orthopedics by Hozak and colleagues. There is then also the list of all the reviewers who have participated this year in uh, doing reviews for the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Obviously, the editor-in-chief gets a lot of attention, and deputy editors and contributors and associate editors get a lot of attention as well. Uh, but it really is the reviewers that that help us make the decisions that we make the whole year long. And this really couldn't be done without them. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are awesome. And we you guys are all on the nice list this year. Your cases are on go. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So then let's get into the headlines. Uh, my headline is secondary fracture rate after vertebral osteoporotic compression fracture is decreased by anti-osteoporotic medication, but not increased by cement augmentation. This is by Mills and colleagues. Interesting study uh, with an interesting premise, obviously in my wheelhouse, so a natural selection for me. I do treat a lot of patients with these types of uh, injuries. And um, cement augmentation has you know kind of been up and down in terms of popularity and utility, but I think we've kind of reached a plateau uh, somewhere in the last half of this decade in terms of its utilization. And the, the authors were using Pearl Diver data to look at cement augmentation and see if this increases the rate of secondary fracture compared with non-operative management. And then whether anti-osteoporotic medications reduce the rate of secondary fractures. Those were their two primary questions. They, they had a third question about the rate of osteoporosis treatment with medications following vertebral fractures, but this is obviously going to be just sort of in the nexus of pearl diver data between 2015 and 2019. And uh, this is an overwhelmingly insured and not necessarily representative population. Now, you know, some of this with the premise, the use of cement augmentation 
is now accepted as it's a pain relieving modality if administered appropriately uh, for patients with acute vertebral fractures who have otherwise failed non-operative measures. In some studies, the cement augmentation actually increases the risk of fracture. So it's not really the reason that you do the cement augmentation to prevent future fractures. That's clearly what the anti-osteoporotic medication is for. And interestingly, patients who underwent non-operative management had a secondary fracture rate at about 22%. And this was lower for those who underwent either of the two variations of cement augmentation, vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty, where it was about 15 and 19% respectively. But then following multivariable adjusted analysis that took into account uh, comorbidities, age, uh, gender, these differences were not significant. What remained significant, though, was that the patients who were on osteoporosis medication did have lower rates of secondary fractures. That's that's somewhat intuitive, but as we've discussed in uh, prior work that's been published in the journal and that we've covered here in your cases on hold uh, around hip fractures, a lot of these patients who should be on the osteoporosis medications uh, are not for one reason or another. I, I feel like we've been in the own the bone decade with its messaging since like 2002, it's like the second decade of, you know, try it again for the first time. And, and bone, that's why. <laughs> yeah. The, the message just hasn't really like sunk in or been embraced by the community for, for whatever reason. And I mean, these really are patients who can benefit from being identified with these sentinel fractures to prevent distal radius fractures or hip fractures or uh, a, a new vertebral compression fracture that can be very painful, affect lung function, and, and lead to functional deterioration and loss of quality of life. So an interesting work. Some of the premise was kind of like, well, is that, you know, I'm not sure that's exactly correct, but at, at the end of the day, um, a, a well-done analysis and um, some interesting findings, and we just need to keep harping on this with, with the community, it seems. So give out your drugs. You know, at the holiday season, that's the best gift you can give is someone give them better, stronger bone quality. So. Yes, give the gift of bone quality. It is the <laughs> gift that keeps on giving the whole year long, Clark. It really is. Um, that's not quite the same with cement. So let's stick with bone instead of cement. How's that? <laughs> yep. I, I, I think uh, it's, a, it's a good compromise. All right. So I have a different type of gift. I have a gift of different incision types. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me just remind people, though. Um, this is like the home shopping network. Like, let me get this straight. I'm just getting a call in. We can't be doing this all all month, guys. But um, that that article with the headline that does have a visual summary. It is free for 30 days. So do check it out. I love it. Okay. So mine has an infographic. So the next one I'm going to be talking about is by Levetted and all the effect of transverse versus longitudinal incisions on anterior knee pain after tibial nailing, the name travel, which is pretty sophisticated sounding, um, a multi-center randomized trial with one year follow-up. So the idea is looking at duration of time, which is also good. Um, what I like about the study is that it gives you a very straightforward question. The question is, if you make an incisional transverse versus longitudinal, do you have different outcomes? 
And they did a multi-center study. They had um, 68 patients in each group, and it's randomized. They based their sample size calculation um, specifically on the uh, mean visual analog score for pain from a zero to 100. They focused on anterior knee pain after for kneeling as their primary endpoint, which I found was kind of interesting. I would just look at anterior knee pain just in general, but they did look at other activities with anterior knee pain, but not all patients want to kneel anyway afterwards. Um, and this is true, obviously, in our total knee patient population. So I don't know if I would have focused on anterior knee pain with kneeling, but just anterior knee pain alone. They were using literature with a 33% decrease in pain, representing a meaningful change in pain. Um, so they said they needed a total of 108 patients, and they assumed a 25% loss to follow-up for a one-year follow-up. And that's probably pretty true for most trauma case patients, even not more. So they included a minimum of 136 in the study. So that's what they needed to um, get this over the uh, finish line. Um, the nice part is there were 13 hospitals involved in here. So it was a good number of uh, hospital centers, not a huge number of patients, which we'll cover just a little bit is probably why a lot of the um, results are not necessarily um, statistically uh, significantly different. Um, so more numbers would have potentially teased out more findings. Um, but again, it's a simple but important question with only one variable in uh, one variable in question, and they were looking at the infrapatella branch of the saphenous nerve. The idea is if you do a transverse incision, um, it's in line with the course of the infrapatella nerve at the level of the patella tendon, so potentially could reduce this nerve risk um, injury or this nerve injury. Or see you um, go longitudinal. The nerve branches run along the medial border of the patella and cross the patella tendon. And because of that, if you make that longitudinal incision, you can cut it. So patients don't like that. They like to have some sensation in there. And it would be, uh, it was good to follow up for one year. So um, they looked at, you know, transverse incisions and they allowed people to do transverse incisions. But after you do the transverse skin incision, they allow surgeons to do transpatellar or medial peripatellar approach. Um, I would like to have seen this teased out to see if there was a difference. Um, they did not look at this. They just kind of said a dealer's choice. Same with the longitudinal incision. They basically said, okay, you do a longitudinal incision, you kind of kind of do whatever you want afterwards. So not that you need to standardize it, but it is a prospective randomized trial. So you could potentially at least do a little bit more um, uniformity to see which one's better. It would have been nice to have physical performance characteristics. So you can talk about kneeling, but what about kneeling? How long can you kneel for? You know, yes, you're going to have pain when kneeling, but if you're kneeling for one second, how much is the pain? If you're kneeling for 10 minutes, is a different sort of pain. So performance characteristics like floral enhancement or going up and down stairs, things like that, besides just questionnaires would have been nice. I would love to pick your brain about the statistical analysis. They reported everything in the median in the 25th and 75th percentile and estimated marginal mean in their results. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is that this is the study was conducted from September 9th, 2015 to June 6th, 2018. Again, very specific dates. But that said, uh, it was a one-year follow-up. So you would think that potentially this would have been published at an earlier uh, time point. You know, we're at 2022 now. This, this is being published when the last patient was enrolled in June 16th, sorry, June 6th, and needed one-year follow-up to 2019. So this is three years later. So not that the data would change, not that the results would necessarily change, but in that time frame, they could have actually enrolled more patients. Well, they didn't need to based on their statistical analysis. It would have been interesting if they could have gotten more patients during that time frame. Um, they looked at a bunch of different outcomes. Um, they looked at 
Pain is their most important outcome, especially in kneeling pain we talked about already. Different activities, um, range of motion. So knee range of motion, I understand, but ankle range of motion may not be as relevant given the longitudinal versus transverse incision. Um, They did look at sensory disturbances. Um, I thought it was interesting to see at two weeks post-surgery, it was 19% in the transverse incision versus 70% in the um, longitudinal incision at 12 months. The number was still pretty similar When it came to the uh, transverse patients, the percentage was still pretty similar there and the longitudinal had decreased. So, you know, the one thing they keep in mind to counsel patients to say, look, even at 12 months, you might still have this. So you might have less of it if you have a transverse incision, but if you have it, you're likely to still have it in the future. So that's something to keep in mind. It would be nice probably in the method in the results section, you know, state that there were no differences. You had to go to the tables to see that there was no really differences in complications and reoperations. But that's also an understandable one. It would make non-significant might have been nice to write down too. And again, the sample size, again, it would have been nice to have more patients and potentially do this in a national healthcare system where um, you could have better follow-up on patients. You know, in our healthcare system, it's not as easy to follow up on patients, but if you're in a different healthcare system, potentially you have the same numbers in the same uh, healthcare system that is more beneficial. So it'd be interesting uh, to see if this changes people's practice, again, this is a very practical study. So just based on nerve alone, and that was the premise of the study, it would probably encourage people to do transverse incisions, uh, whether or not that's a um, comfort level with regards to people doing that or not um, is uh, yet to be determined. Yeah, agreed on on all the points. Uh, it is a randomized study. So um, the type of work we like to, to see published in the journal, a practical question the, the median, when you're reporting medians, you should be co- reporting the interquartile range. So that's kind of a, a standard there. And the data is probably non-parametric, so it makes sense to report medians, so it's less me- misleading. Overall, you know, I think interesting work. At the end of the day, uh, you know, adoption or how widely this would be adopted also does seem to come to mind. But one way or the other, uh, interesting scientific information. Now we are moving into the Your Cases on Hold featurette, the rise of Medicare Advantage, effects on total joint arthroplasty, patient care, and research. This is by Wang and colleagues. It does have a commentary, so you don't have to take my word for it. And also free for 30 days. So definitely do check that out. This study uh, was conducted using data from the Premier Healthcare database. And the setting is the fact that privatized Medicare Advantage plans have gained popularity in the U.S. over the last 20 years, reducing the number of beneficiaries who are participating in traditional Medicare. I think that beneficiaries tend to like these plans because they look and feel more like traditional health insurance that you're used to before you convert over to Medicare. And, you know, they have less co-pays and, and there, there are lots of other ways that these um, plans sell themselves to um, people who are eligible for, for Medicare. Surgeons in particular, uh, and maybe physicians in general, are, are less enthusiastic. And I think the number one pain point for uh individuals. And and again, it's not unique to Medicare Advantage. Uh, We see it more and more with all sorts of uh, private insured plans is the prior authorization. And prior authorization, of course, is intended to 
prevent utilization of unnecessary services or provision of unnecessary surgeries. But studies have shown that many Advantage plans inappropriately deny services, or at least as those study, the authors of those studies substantiate it's in, I'm not sure if you ask the Medicare Advantage plans that they would say it's, it's inappropriate. But at, at the end of the day, you know, people are concerned because the privatized plans do have a financial incentive or at least a moral hazard, we'll say, in a way that standard traditional Medicare does not to try and deny services or limit the uh, expenditures on the part of the patient in order to essentially accrue money for themselves. Fair? So this study looked at the number of individuals who were undergoing total joint arthroplasty, they have like kind of two separate analyses. They looked at uh, the 16-year period, 2004 to 2020, to describe the trends in insurance coverage. And then they made comparisons just in the more recent period, uh, 2015 to 2020, between uh, complications uh, using um, ICD-10 codes. So that's why the limitation on the 15 to, to 2020. And also it's it's a more reasonable cohort of patients in which to speak about the current healthcare environment than using data that's now 20 years old. So they found, predictably, the number of patients utilizing uh, Medicare Advantage plans increased markedly uh, so that about 33% uh, were using them in 2020. Patients who were non-white were more likely to have Medicare Advantage than traditional Medicare, and the Medicare Advantage group had a higher rate of several post-operative complications. This is their conclusion. They then sort of slide over into their, their policy impact lane, and they say, this change portends future challenges, including limitations in arthroplasty registry research, an increase in administrative burden for surgeons, and potential worsening of social disparities in healthcare. The increase in administrative burden for surgeons, I think, is a little bit of a reach, or not a little bit. I think it's it's a lot of, of, of a reach. They're basically saying more people do Medicare Advantage. That means more arguing or, or doing the prior authorization on the part of surgeons and their practices. So that's kind of tangential and an extrapolation of this work. Past performance is not necessarily an indication of future practice. There may be this 33% is kind of the ceiling and Medicare Advantage penetration is not you know, going to continue to increase at that exponential rate. I don't know. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, their, their statements, I found them quite um, interesting. You know, they say that the steady decline in traditional Medicare means that CMS will have less comprehensive data over time ostensibly because the it would be the other plans that have it. I still think CMS has visibility on it in one way or another, or at least should. And that uh, implant survivorship studies in the AJRR will be challenging in the future. So we must act now to save the AJRR, everyone. We must act. Um, stop, just get everyone off Medicare Advantage because the AJRR is going to be compromised. I don't know. That just seems like a very a very ostentatious and kind of outsized um, conclusion to, to draw. That's important, buddy. <laughs> I'm not saying that the AJR is not important. I just don't think that, like, I think if surgeons are are doing the data entry themselves, and in, in some respects, I think that is the expectation, it shouldn't be an issue. And then also, 
claims-based data that just gets populated directly into the AJR probably isn't all that useful because claims-based data, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast at all, you've probably embraced this concept or at least, you know, had it diffuse uh, to you that claims-based data is insufficiently granular to support making clinical determinations or conclusions. So to say like the things that are auto-populated from CMS into the AJRR, if we lose that, it's going to be a disaster. I don't know. That that just doesn't have a lot of face validity for me. And then they get to these complications. And this is really where the, um, you know, the Christmas stocking is, is getting filled up with coal or, or we're seeing the Krampus uh, show up taking the bad researchers and putting them in his, his sack, you know, Krampus, like the, it's like the evil Santa Claus kind yeah, of the, the Santa Claus. That's the uh, the Grinch side of things. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like in cultures where they're not into giving gifts. It's like you just won't be punished if you were good. <laughs> no, carrot? no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. No stick. But yeah. no carrot. <laughs> so, yeah. So they, they make this deal about the complications. And if you look at their table three, you can see the complications and they're going to show you the unadjusted rate, their univariate uh, result, which is really bivariate, and then their multivariable result. And um, they have several ones here, surgical site infection, PJI, stroke, AKI, and UTI, which are all significantly different. UTI in the opposite direction, where traditional Medicare is higher than Medicare Advantage. So a couple of issues with this. First off, Medicare Advantage in and of itself is not the causative factor for this. That's that's not a, a causal model, one-to-one sort of linear determination. There are many other factors that are going into this. So it is the, the answer is not if we just did away with Medicare Advantage and everyone was on traditional Medicare, there would no longer be uh, differences in, in outcomes. Everyone would have the same outcome. Uh, so that's Medicare Advantage is not causing these very marginal differences in complications. They might be statistically significant because of the very large size of the sample, but let's look at SSI. It's 0.09% in traditional Medicare versus 0.11%. So a 0.02 percentage point difference. That does happen to be statistically significant. When you look at the adjusted odds, the lower bound of the confidence interval is 1.04. And the point estimate is 1.15. And this is the same by and large, you know, we're just talking about a few point zero something percentage point difference in in most of these these outcomes. The largest difference is in AKI where it's a 0.35% difference. And if you did, this is an exploratory analysis, and if you did adjust for the p-value and say, okay, the p-value has to really be something very, very, very low for us to say that this is a real meaningful finding. Let's say 0.001. It has to be less than that. You can do the Bone-Ferroni correction or figure out you know, a Shadok correction or something along those lines yourself. But if we just set it as you know, large sample, there are going to be a lot of things that are present, maybe solely due to chance or very marginal. It has to be a larger percentage then it's only AKI that's that's actually different with a value that meets sort of that putative threshold. So the, I think the complications are a little bit of a stretch, both in terms of the narrative and the um, clinical conceptual model, 
and then actually in sort of the argument that they're making to from their very exploratory statistical approach. That's what I have on this. And I would say that I understand why we do not like the increased uh, burden of Medicare Advantage. But I, beyond that, I think a lot of the attempts to color Medicare Advantage in a negative light in this study are, are really kind of stretches. Interesting enough, you know, when I looked at, I completely agree with you 100%. My first thing I wrote down was it's kind of a data exposition, expedition, right? Or a fishing expedition where you go fishing and try to find out the comorbidities that come to light. And of course, I do like the fact that you go for all the specific comorbidities and things like that and get information out of patients. Uh, but anyway, long story short is UTIs went down, but the rest of them went up. They're all infectious complications. What about certain type of insurance would predispose to that? There's too many variables that are in there, right? These can include too many different pre-op protocols. You know, there's not enough information about patient populations. You know, do patients have a higher rate of UTIs prior to surgery? Things like that, that we don't have the information. So to make these overarched conclusions, then that if you have Medicare Advantage, you're going to not get a UTI or you're going to get a surgical side. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So... It just seems like that kind of like, I don't like Medicare Advantage. And so anything that I find out about it that is also a reality will can just substantiate my, you know, it's like, if this is mini count Dracula, then Medicare Advantage is bad. If this is Chewbacca, you must acquit. Like, it's like that Seinfeld thing. Like, you know, if I find it and it's different, then it's because Medicare Advantage is bad. And I don't like Medicare Advantage. So... You know, there's not a like Medicare Advantage is not going away either. There's not a, a practical solution that it, it's just yelling at the wind. Kind of. And the trends show that it's actually increasing in utilities. Right. Right? So it's like not that it's going to change anyway. I mean, it can be a warning sign, but it is increased exponentially, you know, over this time frame. Now, don't get me wrong. I do not like pre-authorizations. So yes, I would like to do less of those, but it's not necessarily due to this. Um, and of course, we like data. So things like AJR, Spine is also doing a registry as well. So we have to be careful about how we get data and get information. But, you know, this alone is not a reason why not to engage with Medicare Advantage is how do we bring in data from other sources? And I think but as a researcher... And I know you agree with me on this. The best data is data that's entered at the uh, at the point of entry is proximate to the event associated with the individual who is also associated with that event. Absolutely. If you're outsourcing where it's just we're going to just auto populate this from your claims or the 90 day outcomes based on your claims, that's not really the intent of, of what these data registries are are intended to, to to do. It's not what they're doing in the Swedish registry or the Australian registry or any of the other registries that we've covered this year that produce really great research, the Wakanda Total Joint Registry, of course. Definitely the best one in the world. Yeah, no, for sure. That because of the adamantium total hips. I mean, that's the only metal on metal that really works. But but re really, for real, um, you know, these registries are using point of care data entry. And that's where the quality is. So the argument that like it's not going to be auto-populated, you know, from a research standpoint, I don't think it should be auto-populated in the first place. Yeah, and that's a hard thing. It's impossible not to get that. I mean, unless you have a national system like the other countries do, you know, those kind of come from to your from research perspective, you're exactly right. It's much better when it's our own data. And then even that our hardest part is longitudinal data follow-up in general for AJR patients only really happen through Medicare. So 
it's hard. There's a lot of other nuances that we can go down a rabbit hole about data analysis, data acquisition, but I do agree with you. The best is when I obtain it from patients. That's what we like our prospective randomized controlled trials because we're trying to get all those data points at as many time points as possible so we can have completeness data. All right. So on to the honorable mentions, multiple imputation to salvage partial responders, analysis of the forgotten joint score 12 after total hip arthroplasty. This is by Yamate al. This is permanently free. Lengthening behavior of magnetically controlled growing rods and early onset scoliosis, a multicenter study by Heyer and colleagues. Cytotoxic effects of common irrigation solutions on chondrosarcoma and giant cell tumors of bone by Moore and colleagues, also with an infographic. And then anterior vertebral body tethering compared with posterior spinal fusion for major thoracic curves by Newton and colleagues. That wraps it up for the year for the episode and for the year. That's 24 Your Cases on Hold that we have done this year covering 24 issues of the best in orthopedic science. Before we go, I want to be sure to thank you, Antonia, for embarking on this. Uh, I know I tricked you into doing this with me. We've discussed that and covered that in the past, but it really has been a lot of fun. Um, it's something I look forward to every two weeks, and I hope that the listeners do as well. I also want to thank Mark Swinkowski. I feel like I'm getting an Oscar. Like Mark Swinkowski, who believed in us and gave us the, uh, the opportunity. Jason Miller, who was also you know early and on board. The other folks and the administrative team at JBJS, Christina Nelson, Tessa Kadar, Alan Harper, Greg Englander, Victoria Parker, all the listeners, readers, reviewers. We couldn't do this without you. It's only as good as it is because you are uh, you know, engaged with us and we hope to bring you more of the same in 2023. That's a hard act to follow. The short answer is to say thank you, Andrew, for coming with this great concept. Thank you for hoodwinking me into this and it really has been fun. So I appreciate it and I do look forward to doing this. And thank you to all the listeners who stuck it out with us for these 24 episodes and actually tuned in. So good news is we're not going anywhere. Um, you can listen to us in 2023. And I just want to thank you all for being here and for listening. And stay tuned to see if uh, we got our holiday uh, wishes for uh, eternal happiness or the LV cardigan. Yeah. <laughs>